We'll open up your Bible to Matthew chapter 28. If, uh, if you're just visiting with us today, we've actually been walking through the book of Matthew. And today we come to the resurrection on resurrection morning. As we've been following the book of Matthew, uh, it's helpful to kind of remember where we've come from. And uh, what is the theme of the book of Matthew? Big hint behind me on the screen. The kingdom. And really, Matthew from Matthew 1.1 to 28.20, he is answering the question, what is the kingdom like? Who is the king of that kingdom? Who belongs in that kingdom? What are those citizens like? And as we come to our text today, actually we start at the end of chapter 27. Follow along with me, starting in verses 62 and following. It says, The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that, how that imposter said, While he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud would be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb without, excuse me, with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's, governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. It's interesting as we look at our passage, some people have looked at this passage and said, this is not like Matthew. All of a sudden, Matthew's just trying to build this case, this false case of this risen Christ. And so he's throwing in this extra information to try to really sell his case like he would be before a jury. It may kind of sound like that if you just picked it up right here. 
But if you've been following through Matthew 1 all the way to here, you understand that very clearly from the very beginning, Matthew has not, just in chapter 27 and 28, started to be an apologist for a defense for the hope that lies within him. He started in Matthew 1.1. For one of the biggest words that we've seen Matthew use throughout the whole book is, all this, took, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by, this was to fulfill, this was to fulfill. He's been connecting the dots for us, one by one by one by one, almost as if he's presenting his case before a judge or a jury. And I believe this is the kind of the closing argument, where he nails it down and says, Christ is who he said he is. There is no question that can be left in our minds, for it was clear. But the tone in which Matthew does it is not, well, I think this is true. There's a great tone of just great proclamation. Here is what took place. There is no question left in our minds. Jesus is the Messiah. The one spoken of, the one fulfilled, and the one whom we look forward to his second coming. But as we look today, I want us to look at, at the witnesses to the resurrection of Christ. Uh, almost like Matthew's building this case for us. Let's look first of all, if you want to follow along in your notes. Number one, people. Um, and uh, you know what? I forgot to mention Angela. Where'd you go? We have some kids notes in the back if any of the kids didn't get those when they, uh, they came in. But we look at the various people that Matthew records here. First of all, and actually as I was thinking about this, I probably should have flipped my notes around, but I like to follow kind of a sequential order, but hey, it's Sunday, right? We'll switch it up, okay? So number one, we see the guards. The guards give testimony. They give testimony in two different ways. We see the testimony of Matthew recording in Matthew 28, verse 4. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But we also see the guards giving testimony in verses 11 to 15. Coming and saying, hey, Jesus is risen. There was no question that what had taken place was truly happening. For the guards were the first testimony, but also the women who were there. Now, if you just read Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 to 10, you may say, wow, there's a lot of parts of the, the resurrection account that I'm not hearing in this passage. And how do those things fit? But as we've been walking through Matthew, Matthew is not really concerned sometimes with a lot of details. He's focusing a little bit more on a theme, a theme of Right now, showing who is Christ, and I believe showing here, who are those witnesses? Because if you read this just at first glance here in Matthew, it would seem as if the women were there at the earthquake. There's not a lot of clarity, but yet when we bring in, because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the four Gospels, and some of them record slightly different accounts from different perspectives. And as they do that, they give us certain details that maybe the other one wasn't as focused on. And we understand that the earthquake took place with just the guards around. And then afterwards, the women come. And the women, 
Matthew says are Mary and Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. But we also see in the other accounts that there was a woman named Salome as well with them. And as these women were there, it wasn't that they just saw an empty tomb. But what do we see down in verse 6? Excuse me, verse 8. Sorry, verse 9. And behold, Jesus met them. These weren't just witnesses of an empty tomb. These were eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. And that's the important thing to note here, that it's not just, hey, I saw something that was empty. But truly. In John chapter 20, John records, Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping whom you are seeking? Supposing him to be a gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me, where have you laid him? And I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned to him and turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. For the guards were eyewitnesses. The women were eyewitnesses. Not here in Matthew, but we see the men on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24 were eyewitnesses of that account. Peter and John in John 20 and uh, Luke 24 were also eyewitnesses because they come running after the women tell them to come. In John 20, it says, Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. John's speaking of himself, kind of in, what is that, the third person? Luke 24, 12, But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stopping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Now here at this account, they've just seen an empty tomb. But later Christ will appear to them. So we don't just see uh, uh, just the followers of Christ. We see the guards also giving testimony to the resurrected Christ. But let us not skip over the fact that the tomb is also a witness. There's not Christ still there. For the angel says to the women, come, see the place. That there was no question. For he is risen. And it's interesting, as the guards go and they they share the story with the chief priests, there was an immediate attempt to try to discredit the account of the resurrection. This still happens today in the 21st century. Within moments after the resurrection, there's an attempt to cover it up, to hide the fact of the truth. Throughout history, there have been lots of anti-resurrection theories. First of all, one called the swoon theory, where Jesus didn't really die at all. He was just laid in the tomb unconscious, and then he came back, kind of resuscitated by himself. He escaped the tomb. He appeared to the disciples who had mistakenly thought he had been resurrected. There's a bit of a problem with that. The Romans were pretty efficient with crucifixion. So much so that the historian, the Jewish historian Josephus, uh, was kind of taken under his wing by Titus after the fall of Jerusalem. And there was a 
a mass crucifixion that took place and Josephus was recorded walking by and he recognized four friends of his and he reached out to Titus and said, would you save them? And Titus calls them to be brought down. They received medical attention and still after receiving medical attention, most of them died. It was not just something that, oh, hey, by the way, you can kind of survive a crucifixion. There's been numerous accounts just speaking of what physically happens to the body. The rigors of the crucifixion had left Christ at a state which he couldn't even carry his own cross. Many would have died in the flogging alone. Excuse me, in the scourging. And yet to move a stone, and we're not talking little pebble stones, but you, you know the, the, the picturesque picture of the garden tomb. And oh, by the way, there's guards there. This is not just some person who had survived and swooned. The other one is the hallucination theory that, that Jesus just appeared to his disciples. They really hallucinated about it. For he didn't really come back from the dead. The, the, the problem is um, hallucinations are individual affairs. You don't have 500 people having the same hallucination. It's not a natural claim at all. You also have the conspiracy theory that the disciples made it up and stole the body. But Matthew even gives us the, the rebuttal for this in our text. Showing that the chief priests, the Pharisees, were trying to plan ahead. Do you realize that here in Matthew 27, they quote Jesus in verse 63 saying, after three days I will rise. It was the religious leaders who remembered Jesus' own words, and yet his own disciples didn't. But we shouldn't just kind of skip over some things like that. But realizing that they were concerned about his disciples, and they took extra measures and assembled the guard, assembled the, the ceiling of it. And there's another one that, John Crossan has put out called the wrong tomb theory. That they just went to the wrong tomb. And they went to the tomb that was wrong, and, and of course it was going to be empty. Yet, the authorities could have just pointed out, hey, no, this is the other tomb over here. Well, John Crossan then says, well, actually, what had happened is they couldn't point to the real tomb because it was a, he was dumped with the commoners. But we know in chapter 27, verses 57 to 61, he was buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. You don't think he would have known which was his own family tomb? At the end of Cawson's argument, he admits that he doesn't know what really happened with Jesus' body. All that would have been needed is that they just needed to produce Jesus' body, and that is exactly what happened. But the question is, why would these apostles, who had followed Christ, who was sent out by Christ to share the news of him, why would they be willing to die for a lie? This week I read a, a great quote by Chuck Colson. Uh, we all often think of him as prison fellowship, but... He was involved in the Watergate scandal with Nixon. 
And Chuck Colson was quoted saying this, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. Now that alone kind of says, what? What, How's he doing? Listen, how? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, and they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. Now again, this is just outside argumentative information. For the power of Scripture alone is our basis. Even E.M. Blakeclock, a professor of classics at Auckland University said, I claim to be a historian. My approach to classics is historical. And I tell you that the evidence for the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ is better authenticated than most of the facts of ancient history. But the truth is, when we don't want to believe something, we'll do anything we can to try to cover it up. And that's exactly what the chief priests were doing here paying off the soldiers to sell a lie because the tomb was empty. We have another witness, the angel. The angel proclaims, He is not here, for He has risen. And then to show kind of that fulfillment picture that Matthew has shown us all along, as He said. Now hang on really quickly, but think about the role of angels in the life of Christ. They proclaimed his incarnation, they proclaimed his resurrection, they proclaimed his ascension into heaven in Acts 2, in the, uh, Acts 1, excuse me, and his, the angels proclaimed his exaltation in the throne room of heaven. The angels are involved in all those and we see the unique picture of how the angel, an angel of the Lord gives testimony to the resurrection of Christ. But there's another. It's Christ himself. Because he appeared to over 500 people. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6 says, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of them are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. What falling asleep means is not tryptophan kicked in and they fell asleep. It, they died. But Paul is writing 1 Corinthians later in the first century. And he's saying there are still eyewitnesses today who were there. They were part of that 500. And they saw Christ himself resurrected. But Acts helps us to see not only did he appear to 500 people, but he appeared over 40 days. Over 40 days. Acts chapter 1 verse 3. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. Approving, excuse me, appearing to them during 40 days. And speaking about the kingdom of God. For Christ himself. It wasn't just again that they had seen an empty tomb. And the people said, hey, I saw the empty tomb. 
but they are eyewitnesses of the account of Christ's resurrection. To think about the impact that Christ had. But so many people would say, okay, maybe he was just a good man. Maybe he was just a a good man who who taught a lot of good moral truths. And we should listen to him because they're good things that, that advance culture, advance societies, that help a society live in such a way that it's blessed. But there'd been over 300 prophecies. Some would count up to 400 prophecies of this Messiah. And the probability that one person could fulfill eight of those prophecies is one in 100 million billion. That would be like putting a one and a half inch tile on every square inch of earth's land and pick one and you got the right one. The odds of winning the California Super Lotto Plus are one in 41 million. And we're speaking one in 100 million billion, and that's eight prophecies. I'm not a mathematician. I stand on the shoulders of other men who share these statistics. The probability that one person could have fulfilled 48 of those prophecies, which is a very simple thing even just looking at the New Testaments. It says, it's 10 to the 157th power. So it's 10 with 157 zeros behind it. That's the probability. There's 1 million atoms in one hair width. But then you take the number of atoms in the universe, multiply it by a trillion, 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 billion universes, and then pick one of those atoms, and that's your probability. So, I mean, we're looking at just even... An eyewitness account, the tomb itself, a statistical. But like Chuck Colson said, there was a great change in the lives of people. And that's number four, five, excuse me, the transformed lives. Up to this point throughout the Gospel of Matthew, the lives of the disciples have been Kind of a roller coaster. Times of great faith, times of great failure. Times of abandonment, because Mark 16, verse 8 says, And they went out and fled the tomb from, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Jesus even predicted here in Matthew 25, oops, excuse me, Matthew 26, that they would be scattered on account of himself. They were put to flight. But the reality of Christ's resurrection brought about an empowerment that created great change. First of all, in the life of Peter. Peter had denied Christ the, the root before the rooster crowed account. And yet, 50 days later, he says in Acts 2, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus, 
delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. That's a different Peter. You have Apostle Paul, who was Saul, as Acts 9 says, breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord. But after Christ comes to him on the road, the first verses after in verses, chapter 9, verse 20 says, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. This man who was trying to do everything he could to oppose Christ comes face to face with him and there's a radical transformation. You have Thomas, famously known as Doubting Thomas. In John 20, verses 27 and following, it says, Then he said, he, Jesus, said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands, and put out your hand and place it on my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. He wasn't saying, Jesus, you're just some good guy. He's recognizing the deity of Christ. And so it is, as God opens our eyes to believe the truth of him, there's a change in our own lives. For 1 Corinthians 5.17, it says, For if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. There's many in this room that can give testimony of that. The brokenness over a life lived as an enemy of God. But his grace poured out that transforms lives. First Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen race, the royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of, who called you out of darkness into his Marvelous light. Job, facing great trials in the Old Testament, shows his hope. He says, for I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. There's a great change that comes when we recognize that Christ is risen from the dead. Because when we acknowledge that he is risen from the dead, we understand that he is who he said he was. That there is not just a shrieking of our responsibility to proclaim who Christ is. Pilate, the Roman governor, tried to wash his hands and to say, hey, his blood is on your hands, but yet we must choose. Is Christ risen from the dead or is he not? If he's dead, then he's like many false prophets who have come. But if he's alive, he is who he said he is. I believe that scripture is clear, history is clear, that Christ is who he said he was. 
And on that Good Friday, he took upon him my sin. Because God is a holy God and my sin has separated me from him. I'm not able to wash that clean. I'm not able to do as many good things as I possibly can to try to have him turn the other way and avoid my sin or to have it removed by my good works. There's nothing that I can do. 2 Corinthians says that, speaking of he, God the Father made God the Son to be sin for us. What a great reminder it was, Good Friday, when we looked at that together. And Christ taking upon himself our sin. As Peter so boldly preached on that day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, 50 days after, he says, answers us kind of this question. Since Christ is risen from the dead, what now? What do we do now? In Acts chapter 2, in verses 37 and following, it says, Now when they heard these things, the, this Jesus whom you crucified, God raised up. It says, They were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, What do, what, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. How do we respond with the fact that Christ is risen from the dead? We repent because he is God in flesh. He is the physical reminder that we couldn't take care of our sin. He is the reminder that Christ's message was true, that we are lost. He is the reminder that his death was sufficient because his resurrection said, hey, the Father has accepted that sacrifice Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice that doesn't say, but the free gift of God is eternal life in all of our good works. It's in Christ Jesus our Lord. He says, Repent and be baptized. Throughout the scriptures, we understand that baptism is a picture of believing. It's an outward action to show that our faith and trust is placed in Christ alone for our salvation. And then we're called to live, to walk in the newness of life. Does it happen immediately? Do the, the things of my sin just immediately disappear? Sometimes in little ways, yeah. But there's this process of growing. Growing to become more and more like Christ. Romans 6 verse 4 says, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Free from guilt. Full of hope. And full of worship. 
not walking in the oldness of life, but in the newness. Pastor Marcus read earlier, 1 Corinthians 15. It says, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. The crux of Christianity hinges here, Paul says. We have no hope. But Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, does not happen without Good Friday. Because there's not a lamb that has been slain that is able to come back to life. There must have been a death. It's amazing to think of when verse 9 of chapter 28. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and they took hold of his feet and worshiped. They didn't give him a high five. But it was that recognition of who he was. Maybe you're here today and you've been a skeptic. Ah, that Jesus, ah, he was just a good man. I, I don't think a good man would make the, the claims that he made without being called schizophrenic. Without saying, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. That's not a common thing that we say. But Christ was speaking that he was our only hope of salvation. As C.S. Lewis said, he's either a liar, a lunatic, or a lord. There's no in-between. And we can line up all of the, the people who saw the resurrected Christ. If we gave each one of them 15 minutes, we would be here for 128 straight hours to hear them give of their testimony of hearing, of seeing the resurrected Christ. And maybe we say, well, I just need proof that Jesus rose from the dead. I need to see proof that Jesus was who he said he was. The rich man in Lazarus' account in Luke 16, he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. You know what the amazing thing about my job is? I can't convince you into saving faith. Kind Kind of a stinky job, isn't it? I find it a hopeful job because as I present the word of God, it's the spirit of God that brings truth to your life. And no matter how much evidence I may lay out, it is only the spirit of God through the word of God that can help you understand. But I pray today that as I've been doing that, that you would understand who Christ is. We can't understand the hope of who Christ is until again, we realize that we are sinners without hope. We cannot save ourselves. That there's a 
holy and righteous God who demands a sacrifice for our sin. And it's either us or Christ to pay that penalty. And for those who by faith express repentance and follow him in faith, Christ takes our punishment. And that's why Easter Sunday is a time of celebration, a remembering of our hope that Christ has come to life. It's not about what God's going to give me. But that's a self-centered approach. Instead, we need to see, to behold our God and what can we give him. The verse the past few weeks as we've been studying in Matthew, it's 1 Peter 1. I want to close with this. It says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with the perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was forsaken before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, excuse me, for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. Why? So that your faith and hope are in God. Where are your faith and your hope? Are they in yourself? I pray that we will understand that we have no hope except in Christ alone. God calls us when we realize that to repent with our mouth and repent with our life. Repent means to have a change of mind, to turn, kind of that you turn. Do you need to do that today? Is today an understanding that I've been walking as an enemy of God, but I need to walk as he has called me to turn from my sin and to acknowledge that he is my savior. But if we have confessed those words, let us not think that just some words are sufficing, but it's the fruit of our lives that God calls us to show. Matthew leaves next, next week is our last week in Matthew. And he leaves us with a mission to go forward. And the question is, are we doing that? Are we walking in obedience? I pray that we would be found faithful. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, uh, There's a lot of witnesses in our text today of the resurrected Christ. Lord, we confess that all of the accounts are just information until you work to bring them to life in our minds. Lord, as we are reminded of our great hope in Christ alone, I pray that you would Help each one of us to understand it. And not just with as information's sake, but Lord, that it would transform our lives like it has done the apostles. 
Lord, don't do it just for our sake, but do it for your sake, for your glory. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it's a joy the first Sunday of each month to be reminded of Christ's death. And it seems kind of interesting that we remember Christ's death on a day that we're remembering his resurrection. But again, like I said, and and I I just been really struck with it this past week, there's not Easter Sunday if there wasn't Good Friday. There's no hope of resurrection if there wasn't a sacrifice in our place. Like the hymn that's been going through my mind, in my place condemned he stood. Hallelujah, what he what a savior. But the apostle Paul says as we do these things as we eat the bread and drink the cup. We proclaim his death until what? He comes. When he comes, our glorious king, all his own his ransoms. Help me out, Pastor Marcus. All his ransom home to bring. And uh, what a great reminder the Lord's table is. As I pray with the deacons come forward. Father in heaven, thank you for the reminder from your word, a physical reminder in these elements. Lord, we pray that you would remind us of the, the newness of life that is offered in Christ alone. Cause us to examine our own hearts. Lord, if there's sin in our lives, that you would cause us to repent of that, to follow you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.